I love figs. I literally do love figs. Anything fig, that's not a joke. They're nature's candy. And the ones that Valley Fig Growers are producing in the San Joaquin Valley taste like pure California sunshine. They let their sun-dried figs fully ripen on the tree. Then they harvest them when they're at their peak flavor and sweetness. And best of all, Valley Fig Growers is a grower-owned fig cooperative. So that means when you buy their brands, Orchard Choice and Sunmade California Dry Figs, you're directly supporting the farmers who grow them. So you can snack on figs with an easy conscience. Learn more and get some dry fig recipe inspirations at valleyfig.com. restaurant cook knows that the walk-in refrigerator is where you go when you need a moment to cry to confide in a friend to collect your composure it's the place where the pressure to be in control falls away where you're allowed to feel your feelings and get real about the hard stuff and in my walk-in we have the conversations you don't hear anywhere else from america's test kitchen i'm el simone scott welcome to the walk-in Zoe, Zoe joining you from Zoe's Garner Kitchen. Babes, remember that baobab? You playing with that baobab for Brian's book? I've got some new stuff for you, babes. Let's get into this walk-in so I can talk to you about the book, spices, my life, my bigs, my bads, <laughs> my bountiful. Let's go. Let's get it on. I want to talk. This conversation took place remotely, so please forgive some of the audio quality throughout. I'm so excited to welcome Zoe Adjonia into the walk-in with me today. Zoe's an Irish Ghanaian chef from London, and she started Zoe's Ghana Kitchen as a supper club in 2010. Soon after, she wrote a book by the same title, and since then, her focus has been in evangelizing Ghanaian food in the UK and beyond. And today, she's working to decolonize ingredients, yes. Zoe, thank you so much for stepping into the walk-in today. Hey, listen, thank you so much for having me. You know, I was hounding you to come on this show, so I'm finally here. I've arrived. It's really great. I'm so glad you're here. So let's just jump right in. My first introduction to your food in my kitchen was um, recipe testing for Bryant Terry's upcoming cookbook. And I got to make a really amazing dish with baobab. And I, I got to use it in a variety of ways in the recipe. It was very fascinating. I made a butter. I made a rub. I mean, you've really been evangelizing um, Ghanaian food in this way because you brought something into my kitchen that I'd never experienced. Why is that important? Ghana Kitchen was created to, to fill a vacuum in the UK, essentially. It became really apparent really quickly to me that people didn't un- know anything about this cuisine. You know, what I realized was the problem was it wasn't that this food didn't exist in the UK. So, you know, there were restaurants where people could go to eat this stuff, right? But, well, the traditional, and I say, you know, the very, very hyper-traditional local dishes, they existed in like sort of, I don't want to be rude, but, you know, like a small hole-in-the-wall type situation. But definitely 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were for the community to cook for the community and they didn't really care too much to let anybody else in. It wasn't in their gaze at all. And that's absolutely fine. So but what I wanted to do is create this kind of bridge, you know, so it's like, this exists, I can help you get there. 
Um, I can also help you access this amazing culture um, through the food. So no, that's what Ghana Kitchen was. It was like this conduit, if you like, to, to build a bridge between this gap in people's access and knowledge. And that's how it started. You have a really big mission in the food world. And I think the root of it is decolonizing ingredients. Tell me, how do you even start to go about pushing that movement forward? So the mission 12 years ago was bring African food to the masses because people need to know about this, you know? So I did that over restaurants, catering, street food, residencies, pop-ups, a cookbook. Wherever I could be cooking this food, I was there doing it. And so now I've shifted the conversation much more intentionally towards the ingredients specifically and the focus of the, you know, the story of how you connect the ingredients to the producers. And this is all part of this new narrative I'm trying to get everybody on board with, which is decolonizing the food industry. So getting people to understand the relationship with their ingredients better, specifically when they are like African ingredients and highlighting how important it is that people are sourcing responsibly. But not just that, but making sure they're buying from black people, preferably black Africans who are making those ingredients rather than from you know big health brands and big other white business and white celebrities, basically. So what I'm hearing you say is that not only was it important to provide like the physical avenue for people to explore African foods that were already in their neighborhoods, but also to think about it from a really holistic perspective, like from seed to plate. And so you started a spice business. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think that really, for me, was the part that sparked the fact that you are um, intentionally decolonizing the food industry in a, in, a, in a concentrated but major way. Honestly, what happened was I was talking to some of my suppliers and they were telling me about how hard it was now for them to get certain ingredients like grains of paradise or grains of Salem or Fonio because well, I don't know what the equivalent of big pharma is in the food industry, but like big food, let's say big mm -hmm. FMCG companies have taken up shop in a lot of um, the West Africa now because people like me foolishly spend the last 12 years telling people about how incredible these ingredients are, right? And someone's listening and it's usually some white man with money and it's like, hmm, that's a good idea. So... You know, the problem for the producers was that A, all of the crops were being bought out by these companies. So the small exporters weren't getting access to them. Mm -hmm. And then like these kind of new standards on organic and fair trade and all of this started coming in, which was outpricing the producers um, from their ability to be able to export successfully. And, you know, this made me feel a bit stupid, honestly, because it's like, wow, I've been so naive, you know, for so long, thinking in my head that I'm creating wealth for Africa by spreading the love, you know, thinking that people are going to buy these ingredients from the right place automatically. And clearly that didn't happen. So then I realized, OK, so I need to do the extra step here, build a bridge. But also one of my frustrations as a food writer has been for many, many years is that you know people want me to write recipes and I'm doing air quotes around the word authentic here, but... They want these recipes in their publications, but then would tell me to substitute this and substitute that and substitute the next thing. And then it's like, well, this has stopped being Ghanaian now, you know, so what's the yeah. point? And then it's also not my recipe. Like once I've subbed everything, it's just some other recipe. Exactly. So yeah. I thought, well, you know, I build myself a spice shop and everybody can buy the ingredients from the spice shop. I will have a short and transparent supply chain with the producers. So direct with the farm so that I know they're getting paid properly for the ingredients and I can, you know, verify the origin. They're all single origin from this farm, this, you know, and there's a story yeah. behind those producers. Um, 
So that's why I created that ecosystem is, is to kind of, A, try to solve some of all of that, but also to narratize all of that, mm -hmm. you know, so that people knew Absolutely. this is an issue and is a, a problem to solve still. Yeah, that's extremely revolutionary because with one of the top issues in the culinary media industry being how voices are silenced by way of standardizing recipes, you know, it's definitely one of the things that we've been having a lot of conversations about at America's Test Kitchen, you know, like, how can we not bastardize recipes? You know, like, how can we stay true to the ingredients and to the culture that it represents? Like, this is not about making something easy. This is about making something authentic and delicious, you know? I mean, if we can make it easier without stripping it of its integrity, we can do that, yeah. you know? But, like, if there should be no workaround, then we should be using the ingredients that the recipes call for. That is one of the biggest battles, honestly, is the publishing world, you know, whether it's online, digital or in print, there is these templates in publishing well established for recipe writing and each publication will have their own house style guide, obviously. But usually, you know, you get probably 50 words, maybe 80 words to write a head note, um, mm -hmm. which is not very many words, especially when you have right. to contextualize a dish especially when you have to, if you're changing or adapting any element of it, you know, I feel it's important to be able to explain why you're doing that. And there is an onus on food writers and chefs, and rightly so, to attribute the origin of a dish and not make out like they've just discovered something that's existed for 500 years or write about <laughs> it in a way that's pretending it's new, especially when it's outside of their own culture. We call that Columbusing here. <laughs> Well, I, I call it Columbusing and my friends call it Columbusing. Saying you discovered something that was already in yeah, existence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like yeah. that. I'm going to yeah. use that, babe. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it's an ongoing problem, but not many publications seem willing to fix it because there is this other problem, right, where there seems to be this concept held dearly as well that the audience won't get it otherwise unless we make mm -hmm. it super whitewashed and super simple and pretty basic, honestly, then people won't get it. I mean, my yeah. argument is, is actually trust your audience more. They're more intelligent mm -hmm. than you think they are. They are more resourceful than they think they are. The other argument is, well, this is very niche cuisine. Really? It's not niche for the 50 million West Africans that eat it. And it's not right. niche for the other millions of Africans in the diaspora that eat it. And the other X number of, you know what I mean? Like there's an exponential number of people who would be interested in this if you allowed them access to it. So there's all the work involved in that, like so much. I'm not trying to solve it all, but I'm certainly trying to have the conversations and bring it to people's mm -hmm. attentions. FIFO, first in, first out. So Zoe, this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast. We call it FIFO. Do you know what FIFO stands for? Fee-FIFO-FUM. That would be the across-the-pond answer, but here <laughs> in the U.S., <laughs> in our kitchen talk, it's called First In, First Out, which I know you know. First, new products in, go to the back, old products out, come to the front. And so in the true spirit of FIFO, tell us about your formative experiences with Ghanaian food. Where does it all really start for you? You know, for me, it really starts because, you know, my dad's Ghanaian, my mum's Irish. I grew up to two immigrant parents who were working class, poor, you know, they were poor, not much older than children. So I have this kind of politics 
kind of in my DNA, you know, about mm-hmm. identity. But also from a really young age, I understood how important that those foods from their homes were to each respective parent. Now, I get asked quite a lot, why do I emphasize Ghana rather than Ireland in my cuisine? And it's because I had a really close and direct relationship with Ireland growing up, you know. Mm-hmm. We were there on holiday consistently for every half term, every Easter. A lot of my childhood was actually spent in Ireland, you know. On the opposite side of that equation, I didn't have access to that in London. I didn't have any Ghanaian family. I wasn't surrounded by Ghanaian culture, so I didn't know what that looked like. So the only way I could access it was through when my dad was cooking. And I knew, mm-hmm. even from like six, seven, eight, it was clear that there was some private moment, some private journey going on for him when he was accessing that food. And basically, I wanted in. I just wanted a part of that action. I wanted to understand that relationship, and I wanted access to Ghana. So. It was always the food that was my first kind of, for me and my ancestry and my identity, that was what what grounded me. And Mm -hmm. throughout my childhood and my early adulthood and the rest of my life, I just kept cooking that food because I was in love with it, probably because of what it represented to me. Tell me about your dad and those cooking experiences with him, those moments in the kitchen with him. Tell me what that was like. I know that sometimes parents from the diaspora can be a little quiet, right? They want you to do more watching, not talking, you know. But tell me about that experience. Yeah, you're bang on there. My dad is still and was then a very laconic man. Mm -hmm. He doesn't say much. And that's why it was such a challenge for me, you know. When I would say to him, can you teach me tree? He'd be like, why? What do you want to know for? Why? That was it. I mean... I think he thought it was very funny that I was so fascinated by the ingredients. Like, it tickled him somehow. So that was interesting. Like, I think he thought my curiosity was humorous. I don't know how to translate it better than that. And even now, as, you know, the career and the success I've had, I think he mostly just laughs. I mean, obviously, he's really proud, but he doesn't necessarily have all of the words and, and how to describe that. So the first part was dad's home, and we might not have seen dad for a while. He was a bit of a wanderer. Um, Mm -hmm. He wasn't consistently in our childhood, but he always brought stuff with him. Sometimes it was presents, but most often than not, it was food. So Mm -hmm. stage one is like, oh, what's in dad's bag, you know? And it's like, ah, the kenke, the shito. And so the first stage was just exploring the smelling and touching ingredients. And then I guess around seven to eight, and then like tasting a little bit. But they were big, bold flavors. Like shito is proper, you know, pungent, fragrant, spicy hot. Kenke, that fermented maize dough, super stinky on the nose, but it makes your mouth water. And you're like, why do I like this? So, you know, all of this stuff when you're like a kid is just really super exciting and stimulating, right? Stage two is like standing next to dad by the hob and observing, mostly observing. Okay, here's an example of one lesson with him, if it can count as a lesson, because He's also not a very attentive cook. So, you know, whatever's happening in the pan, he kind of just dashes it in there, bosh, 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 bosh. And this one example I have is like the pan's drying out and he's making basically what I call a chalet sauce in my cookbook. And he's making corned beef stew, right? So he's going to plonk into that some tin corned beef, cut it up and some boiled eggs. And it is going to be banging and delicious. Mm -hmm. And I can Mm -hmm. smell it and I'm excited This is one of my favorite things to eat as a kid. But I can see the pan drying out a lot. And even as like a seven or eight-year-old, I'm thinking, this isn't looking good. Look, I can smell burning. (laughs) I can smell burning. But also my dad's a super strict guy, right? You don't Mm -hmm. F with this man. You don't disrespect. 
So I'm like, dad, dad, dad. <laughs> like, tug it in. <laughs> I'm like, dad, how do you know when it's done? As in, I think it's done, dad. And yeah. he's like, he starts laughing and he's got a big laugh. I've got, I've, my laugh is from him. So, <laughs> big sweat, throws his head back. And then he starts pointing at the splashback on the hob and he's like, eh, when he's up on the back, it is done. So when all of the red sauce is out of the pan and on the splashback, I was like, okay, I'm turning it off. <laughs> it's done. So it was like that. I want to talk about the aunties. Um, because we of the diaspora know that aunties are the senior elder women in the community. Um, none of them actually have to be a blood relative, right? And they're, yeah. they tell you what to do. They tell you when you're right and wrong and you don't say anything back. And you listen and you learn from the aunties. And um, you mentioned that the aunties in the community um, were the ones who really kind of like put you on, you know, supported your interest and your curiosity um, For sure. about uh, Ghanaian food. Tell us a little bit about that. Like, I love to hear about auntie relationships. I got uh, so many aunties and my mom's in the sorority, so I got like billions, right? <laughs> <laughs> Lots of aunties. Uh, but I cherish that relationship. So I would love to hear a little bit more about your relationship with the community aunties. Yeah. So, I mean, this is a case in point, actually, of me having to sort of wriggle my way into Ghanaian culture in London because, you look, I'm a six foot tall, very lean, Afro, but like light Afro, you know, I've got that loose wave, light skinned. So this is how I'm showing up in the world every day. And I'm blessed to have around me in East London, a couple of really good African markets. So we have Ridley Road on my doorstep. So in particular, Ridley Road, when I started out, I had on my menu about six dishes that my dad consistently cooked, kenke and fish, groundnut soup, jollof, red red, and it became clear really quick when it was getting really popular. I was like, oh, I need to expand this menu. I need to like do some proper research. And, you know, I take my grandma Charlie down to Ridley Road and down all one side of it is all the Ghanaian aunties. And then on the other side is like Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Togo. It's a bit more broken up on the other side, but there's a lot of Ghanaian women. Anyway, when I was first going there, they didn't trust me. And I was, <laughs> I was looking for something like, there was a really specific thing called Alamo Bitters, and I love this stuff, right, because it's literally just herbal bitters. So I would go down to, you know, Ridley Road and they'd be like, auntie, please. And first of all, she, basically it took me some time to persuade them. But first of all, I used to just get a lot of funny looks like, eh, who are you? Mm -hmm. You know, like, who are you? What do you want? And they'd be like, why do you want to know? And I'd be like, because yeah. um, I'm just like really interested. Anyway, I would have to give my like bio, my personal bio for them to understand, ah, you are Ghanaian. Or, or I would be like, I'd say my Ghanaian name, Araba, Arabna. It's a Tuesday name. Mm. Anyway, it took me some time to break them down to trust me. But eventually, I got quite friendly with them. And every Thursday, I'd be the first there because that's when the new deliveries came in from the, the shipping containers. Mm -hmm. And I'd be right bright and early. And that's how I found out about things like grains of Salem. I found out how to make shito properly from those women. I found out about papo shito from those women. Like so many ingredients. Sure. But it wasn't until I went to Ghana back in 2013 that I really got some like proper hands-on cooking education with the aunties there because I was traveling around on my own and, you know, I would just go into the chop bars. We, we call them chop bars in Ghana in, you know, those kind of little huts on the side of the road, that kind of vibe. And I would go in, I would eat. 
If it was good, I would poke my head in the kitchen with the people and they would show me how to make these things. And it was just the most glorious time. And, you know, I referenced quite a lot of those women in the cookbook, actually. So for the women that gave me, like Fetridici, things like that, they, they've got their name on them in the book. Big ups to the aunties mm. and shout outs to them in the book. That's what's up. Yeah. But I went back like about a year ago and they all recognized me and they were all like, I got your book, I got your book. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. So that that's was a, so sweet. That was a nice like full circle moment for them to have, for like 10 years ago, be like, who are you? And then like 10 years later going, ah, I have your book, you know? Tell me about um, some experiences with Irish cooking, which is oddly enough, I kind of grew up eating a lot of Irish staples growing up in Michigan because... Oh. The Midwest is, was a quite a, a region for Irish immigrants. So I grew up eating like corned beef and cabbage and potato like that is every month. That is the stuff. Every month. So it's mm-hmm. like a lot of potatoes, obviously. Yeah, potatoes and cabbage, potatoes and corned beef, Irish stew, sort of lamb stews, a lot of hot. This is the thing. It's like a lot. There's, there's such a lot of similarity, actually, in the cultures which Mm -hmm. I'm always amazed by because Irish culture and Ghanaian culture, like religion is huge. Um, Mm -hmm. Family is central in both those cultures and family is massive in both those cultures because of religion. There's no birth control, you know? And the dynamic and the matriarchy is strong in both of those things. So anyway, there's a lot of parallels. But so my mum was cooking a lot of stews and then, you know, like English things like chips and, you know, roasts and things like that. Yeah. But very quickly, she took over being like the Don at groundnut soup. Like we used to eat that so much when I was a kid. She's a strong, badass woman, my mother. Like she has seen mm-hmm. some stuff in her life. Um, she's, put, you know, she's come through. Anyway, she can turn her hand to anything. My mum was like, my mum was the mum, the dad, the granddad, the uncles, the aunties. Because we had like a really small, it was essentially me, my mum and my sister. And my dad mm-hmm. would be like a visitor from now on. Do you know what I mean? He would come in and out. But we were a very sure. small core nuclear family. So she wore all the hats. Well, it sounds to me like you're a perfect blend of both your parents. Um, so this similarity of the two cultures that make you who you are as being like communal and in every way. Did that play a role in in why you decided to start doing supper clubs? Because, you know, that's obviously a very different dining structure than like owning a restaurant. And do you feel like growing up in two very community-centric cultures played a role in that? Oh, absolutely. That is a great point that hadn't ever really occurred to me until now you say it, to be honest. But yeah, it's... um... What I love about supper clubs is the hosting. It's the hosting and that direct relationship you get to have with the people eating the food. And also there's a bit of the styling of the dinner, right? It's not just about the food and the menu and the aesthetics of the place, but it's also the arrangement of the people around the table for the most optimal conversation, for the most optimal exchange over the food, you know, and that was super important to me. And that's something that you can only curate like mm-hmm. in supper clubs. But yeah, as you say, what was consistent throughout my life, even though I never had any intention of being a chef or pursuing a culinary career, it was always feeding people. Like even at school, like my friend Lisa Nelson used to always come around my house for groundnut soup, you know. I was always mm-hmm. feeding. I was that geeky kid who wanted to throw a cool house party and then made a buffet. 
that was me. Yes. Because I cared whether people got fed. <laughs> Nobody else cared because that food would end up on the ceiling, the floor, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so that was a theme that has been consistent throughout my life is feeding people, making sure they're nourished, but also curating it in a way that is enjoyable, you know. And I think those things definitely come from those experiences, those two parts of my culture for sure. And so then let's fast forward to 2018. You start Sankofa Supper Club, which is a more elevated dining experience. And would you tell our listeners what Sankofa means and then tell us why and how it applies to your supper club? Sankofa is a slightly different project because it's a little bit more, um, I would say, slightly elevated from Ghana Kitchen, only because Ghana Kitchen is a very fast casual brand. And what happened mm-hmm. was, you know, I grew as a chef and Sankofa means, depending how you interpret it, go back and fetch it or go back and get it. Yes. Um, and obviously people can interpret that in, there's a myriad of ways. But for me, you know, and I've got the tattoo on my wrist here because I love that symbol so much because it was a reflection of what I've been doing, right? It's going back to the culture um, mm-hmm. and bringing it forward, but paying homage to the and respect to that past, but bringing it forward and making it contextually relevant now. That's why I called it Sankofa, because it speaks to what I'm trying to do, which is be connected, look behind me and be respectful, but bring it forward as well at the same time. So I'm going back, but I'm bringing it forward. So that's what Sankofa is about. When Jim Cook founded Samuel Adams in 1984, he knew he had a good idea, a great beer, and a thick skin. But that didn't mean it was easy to get the business off the ground. I realized after a while that it took me 20 calls to get one customer. So I got 19 rejections for every one acceptance. So every time I got a rejection, I'd say, well, I just got 120th of customer. I only got 18 more to go. And that kept me going. It was like every rejection was 120th of an acceptance. That's good math. I love that. So when he did find success, Jim knew he wanted to help other entrepreneurs chasing their dreams too. That's how the Samuel Adams Brewing the American Dream program was born. Since 2008, the program has helped thousands of passionate food and beverage craftspeople succeed so they can do what they love. For more information or to apply, go to www.brewingtheamericandream.com. You can also get info about upcoming events on Facebook at Brewing the American Dream or on Instagram at Sam Adams B-T-A-D. For me, the decision to go to culinary school was life-changing. It put me on track to achieve dreams I didn't even know I had. Like, for example, hosting a podcast about the culinary industry. The Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts is in the business of dream making. Their programs prepare students for a variety of roles in the food world in the most achievable way. They've got campuses in Boulder and Austin, plus online programs that include industry externships. Check out escoffier.edu to learn more. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. OXO product engineer Noah Panelovich wants to make kitchen tools that last. And he really means that. I take it deeply personally. I think sometimes I meet people who are like, wow, that lasted, 
you know, that product lasts me for seven years. I'm like, that was way too short. Like, we wanna make things that last you forever if we can. And so it's a very personal endeavor. Start taking your kitchen equipment personally too. Shop all products at OXO.com. And just for walk-in listeners, OXO is offering a very special discount. Just use code ATK15 for 15% off at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. OXO, better guaranteed. Zoe, I'm about to get all up in your business because I've been super curious and I've been really wanting to know, what were you doing before you were cooking? What career did you have before that? Because I don't think you've been telling anybody about that. I want you to tell me. (laughs) I want to know. Oh, my God. How far back do you want me to go? So my first degree was in law. When I finished law, I was very much in this space of wanting to work in something that was social justice-y, vibe-y. Or mm-hmm. something that helped people that was going to use my law degree. But I decided that I was I had no intention of spending the next 10 years getting beaten down by white old people <laughs> in law, <laughs> honestly. Um, and I needed to make a difference quickly and fast. So mm-hmm. that's what I went to first. I was trying to get back to a creative life again in my head mm-hmm. because my ambition had always been to be a writer. And, you know, I did law because my dad's African and strict, so I had to. Yes. <laughs> Yes, Um, we're familiar with that narrative. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And so I decided to do an MA at Goldsmiths in Creative and Life Writing. And Mm -hmm. that's when the serendipity of Ghana Kitchen, the idea spark, then became the thing that funded me through my MA. So I I just, Mm -hmm. as Ghana Kitchen supper gloves, I didn't have to work anywhere else. I could just focus on reading and writing um, for that course. And I had an amazing time just doing that and the only other thing I was doing was Ghana Kitchen on the side cooking supper clubs. So I have this very interesting inside joke with my production team that I always have felt like I am the American you and you're the British me and that just kind of confirmed it. But yeah, we definitely have some very similar paths in life. The Wall Slide. I want to kind of move into another part of the podcast that we call the wall slide. Mm -hmm. It's kind of the moment where like the shizzle hits the fizzle, if you know (laughs) what I mean, you know. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about your book, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. It was printed at one point and then there was a reprint that is happening. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, well... The first, I had some complicated feelings around the cookbook because, you know, they pushed back the release date so that it coincided with another West African cookbook that was coming out. He's a friend of mine, Lopez. And I was annoyed by that because it felt like a a really kind of white supremacist move. It's like, oh, instead of letting these two each have their own independent moment, let's put them head Mm -hmm. to head. So it obviously split our market for sales and stuff. It was just very frustrating. Anyway... I remember back in the beginning of 2018, the body shop or some client like that wanted to buy four or 500 books. And then I got told, oh, they're out of print. And nobody had told me that. And so I was fuming. And I basically started trying to buy back the rights to my books because they had no intention of printing it again. And I didn't feel like they'd done a very good job, honestly, the first time around. So I started the process of trying to acquire the rights back, but I was getting fobbed off a lot. Oh, this person's on maternity, that person's gone here, blah, blah, blah. 
until suddenly that last spring summertime and the Black Lives Matter movement had its, I don't know, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth, thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth wave <laughs> of yeah. um, global consciousness around the issue. And then obviously everybody was following black people on Instagram and putting up black squares. And suddenly people remembered that I was black in the UK mm -hmm. and I had a cookbook and that they would want to capitalize on it. Probably that's my honest, cynical opinion. <laughs> um, and then they would like, oh, get great news. We've decided to republish your book. And hmm. honestly, I was a bit like, huh, okay. Yeah. Like it was just such a cynical move from my point of view. But at the same time, you know, it's getting republished. So I've got to be grateful for that, obviously. And I am. And I'm glad that it has got this new lease of life now with a new jacket and stuff. And it's reaching a new audience and probably the right audience this time around, because I'm much more yeah. able as well to navigate that and devote a bit of energy to where it's going and who's talking about it, I suppose, that I, I didn't have the wherewithal at the time, you know. I think when yeah. you put out your first book, you put a lot of trust, obviously, onto the agents and publishers, and you just expect that everybody's doing the right thing for you. Um, of course. And, you know, I guess I just didn't have very good advice around me or any advice around me about certain things. So, you know, it is what it is. It was what it was then. Um, mm -hmm. there's no resentments or anything like that you know it came out I got press it was good and it raised my profile in the UK but the book didn't sure. perform as well as it should have done so I'm really happy to say that it's going to be re-released again in the States actually this fall with a proper publicity push as well so I'm excited for that I love that book that book is a, it's a real tome of who I was at the time of writing and it's a real personal mm -hmm evocation of my relationship with Ghana and the food that's in the book is you know it's all super personal it's almost I mean it's not memoir -y, but it's memoir she you know it's got mm -hmm. a lot of personal mm -hmm. narrative and stories in there it has the playlists in there it has it just has a lot of me in it um, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure that you always get that with a cookbook you don't yeah <laughs> you don't, for sure you definitely don't yeah it just means the world to me to have that book out in the world honestly it's a great book thank um, you Did you share um, any of your dark moments in the book, like dark life moments, you know, those oh, rock bottom moments? No, nobody was ready for that, babe, 2015. <laughs> <laughs> People were just about ready for a gun egg cookbook. Even then it was like, <laughs> I know that's right. I've been really careful. And look, I mentor and coach people on this as well. You know, this whole thing about building your story and building your narrative. But in that period between 2010 and 2020, I was super careful about what I let the press know about me and what I let the press know about my family and what went out into the world concerning who I was. Like, I really managed that obsessively. Why did you, why did you do that? Why did you feel like you had to do that? Well, there's a lot of reasons, but, you know, I, I didn't want to put my family under any kind of weird scrutiny at the time because I thought that this mm -hmm. should be about the food. And I also didn't want me to be positioned as anything less than the person making the food. So I kind of wanted to keep out my personal history and my personal story other than what was relevant to me cooking the food, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I held, sure. I held all sense. of it back. And it's only mm -hmm. like in the last, 
well, six months really, or a year maybe. Well, since I had to do that crowdfunder video when I told people for the first time, my, my dad's schizophrenic and he has this condition and he needs his help and I need to like help him. So can you help me so I can help him or people like mm -hmm. him? That was the first time publicly putting that out there. And I guess because of the stage I'm at in my career now, I feel more comfortable about discussing more personal parts of my childhood and who my parents are because... I know how that game works and journalists mm -hmm. want to put their narrative on you, right, for whatever the spin is they want. And I didn't yeah, want it. Yeah, we call it trauma porn. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I didn't want that. Uh -huh. Yeah. I wanted to be recognized for the food I made and for the energy mm -hmm. I brought and for, you know, the experience I created rather than, oh, she's had such a life. Look, you know, do you know what I mean? I didn't want that to be in any way attached to my story until I wanted people to know about the whole story. You and I have talked quite frankly about burnout and the emotional stress, mental stress that can come with our industry. Can you tell me a little bit about how that affected you? I know that you had um, a hospitalization in 2019. Tell me more about that experience and how it has shaped you in the long run. I was in ICU with suspected meningitis. And that sent me on this, you know, basically it was burnout. Like I had just completely, my body was absolutely mm -hmm. gone. And that was a moment that forced me to reevaluate everything, right? Reevaluate my work-life balance, the direction of my career. Was I doing the right thing? Was I in mm -hmm. the right friendships? Was I in, you know, like who was my support network? All of this stuff was being reflected on at the same time. And that was a beautiful time for me. But... The funniest part of it was then me being like, well, especially when COVID hit and stuff like that, actually, I had to, this happened again within like, so in the space of like six months, I had two or three moments of deep introspection around purpose and why and stuff like that. And so I was really examining it in such a deep way and almost being frustrated. You know, when people are frustrated, like, I don't know what I'm good at. I don't know what my purpose is. I don't know. But also it's like I had so many things I could direct my energy towards in mm. the opposite way. And I just remember being in the bath one day and I was listening to Lisa Nichols, I think, on a podcast. And it just occurred to me that my purpose was like I was already doing it. It was just it's such a basic revelation, but it was like a eureka moment. Like it was a real, mm. it's like I was born again. It was like one of those moments. I actually remember running out of the bathroom and saying, oh my God, I figured it out. You know, and it was just me understanding that my true power was in my story. It always was in yeah. my story because that's what everybody always wanted to talk to me about. I mean, people are interested in the food, of course, but they're, they're more interested in like, who's the person cooking the food and why the person cooks the food and what's the story behind that, right? And mm -hmm. what I realized is that when I'm talking in, like, whether it's interviews or panels or workshops or mentors, or whatever I'm doing, it's the story part. It's my voice that hooks people and keeps people engaged. And so that was the thing I needed to develop and use as the tool for my why, you know, and if the why yeah. is decolonizing the food industry, then I better start talking about it and I better start writing <laughs> about it. But the point is I was already doing it. And sometimes you're, you're already doing the thing, but you just need to adjust the direction of travel a little bit. Like you just need to focus yeah. the lens. And I think that was an mm -hmm. amazing thing. So 
usually, I guess, so my learning there was whatever it is that you enjoy doing the most, whatever everybody else says you're good at or says that that's your skill. And if that skill is the thing that you also really enjoy doing, then that's probably your purpose. And then nine times out of 10, that is what you should be doing in life is using that skill and finding a way to monetize it. And so that's what I've been doing. Well, there you have it, folks. (laughs) Your purpose is probably right in front of you. Yeah. And um, despite a lot of the hardships, spoken and unspoken, that you've been through, it sounds like you are in the midst of your big breakthrough. And I'm so excited for you. I love seeing you just shine and grow. Like one day you were just like a new face on my Instagram feed. Now you're sitting in the walk-in with me having this really great conversation. Aww. I'm so proud of you, Zoe. I'm, I feel so honored to know you. Babes, um, don't and you're I know, make me cry. I'm, I'm, I feel so honored right now to be on this walk-in, you know, like two years ago, I couldn't I'd be, I'd be like, that's never going to happen. Uh, but listen, we well. move, you know, I'm so proud of you and everything that you do and achieve. And I am genuinely, when I see people overcoming and working through and rising it's like oh my god I've got so much love and respect and same um, same same you know I want to be part of the cushion that you sit on or I don't know what what do we do how do we raise you up whatever (laughs) how do we do it it is what do you need that's what I'm always asking people and I think that is definitely the impetus behind she chef you know like what do you need what do I have that can fortify what you have if I have a platform, it's our platform. You know, I too highly subscribe to the Sankofa philosophy, you know, like go and fetch it and bring it back. Like everything that I've done, I didn't just do it for me. I did it so that other people either A, don't have to go through the difficulties again mm-hmm. or B, never, you know, need to be referenced. They will always now have a reference. Like it can be done by me, by other people who look like me. That's really important. So I love to lift people up with whatever resource I have. And I'm so glad we could be that for each other. I'm looking forward to doing more things in the future. I know we will. That's exciting. If you're interested in cooking some of the delicious food we talked about today, be sure to pick up Zoe's book, Zoe's Ghana Kitchen. And you can find fair trade, single origin spices direct from the continent through Zoe's online spice shop at her website, zoesghanakitchen.com slash shop. If you want to hear more from Zoe, she has a new podcast, Cooking Up Consciousness. Be on the lookout wherever you listen to podcasts. One more quick thing. If you like The Walk-In and you want more of these real and unfiltered stories and conversations about the food world, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. And while you're there, why not tell us how you feel? Leave us a rating or write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. The Walk-In is created and hosted by my daughter, L. Simone Scott. Today's show was produced by Yumi Araki and Caroline Rickard. Our producers include Hen Margolis and Caitlin Kelleher. Scoring, sound design, and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Additional engineering by Samantha Gatsik. Our theme music was composed by the mysterious Breakmaster Cylinder. Nina Gallant shot the cover art. Olivia Sheldon and Daniela Barrera brought the design. Our line producer is Diane Knox. Jennifer Cuccidi is our intern. 
Jack Bishop is the Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Escoffier and Samuel Adams. The Walk-In is a production of America's Test Kitchen. If you love The Walk-In, then I have a treat for you. We've just launched a companion video series on YouTube. We take snippets from my conversations here on the podcast and animate them with beautiful collages full of photography and custom artwork from some of the flyest up-and-coming artists. It's hard to describe, but you've got to check it out for yourself. Time to get those eyeballs engaged. There's a link in the show notes.